of the box. Meet people through their music. With Heidi Pat on FBI 94.5. How you doing? You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio, where each week we hand over the reins to somebody new and get to know them through the music that they've brought into play for us. My name is Heidi Pet, and this week we'll be getting to know Reg Mombasa, a name who you may be entirely familiar with. He came to Australia at the age of 18 in 1969 and since then has gone on to become one of our most well-loved public figures. As both a musician, uh, his art college band went on to national and then international success. That's mental as anything. Or you may know him for his work for Mambo and a number of other commercial clients or even as an artist in his own right. Now, Reg is now the creative ambassador for Sydney New Year's Eve 2013, which we're going to hear a lot more about just after this but Reg, what have you brought into play for us today? I've brought a selection of things. I've got some songs by, uh, I've got a song by Bob Dylan, um, Rolling Stones, Mississippi John Hurt, um, Hound Dog Taylor, The Loved Ones, The Reels, Marlene Dietrich, The Pogues. We may not get a chance to play them all, but we'll see how we go. We'll see how we go. Now, I note that you haven't brought in any of your own music as you're renowned for being a little bit reticent and quite modest. Oh, I would have quite happily played some of our own tunes, but I thought the uh, idea was that we play other people's. <laughs> we'll see how we go. What should we kick things off with? Uh, we might as well start with, let's start with um, Blood in the Wind, because this is the first, well, I wouldn't call it a pop song, but it's just one of the first songs I heard on the radio that I really related to when I was probably, I don't know, 11 or 12. And, and funnily enough, the, the version that I heard was probably Peter, Paul and Mary's version, which they did a cover of around the same time or possibly even before so I'm pretty sure I heard their version first but but I'm a big fan of um, Bob Dylan I, th I think he's the greatest recording artist of the 20th century so we'll have to start with him. Let's have a listen to the original. You're on FBI Radio, this is Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man How many seas must the white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned The answer, my friend is blowing in the wind the answer is blowing in the wind yes and how many years can a mountain exist before it is washed to the sea Yes, and how many years can some people exist Before they're allowed to be free Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head And pretend that he just doesn't see The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind the answer is blowing in the wind Yes, and how many times must a man look up Before he can see the sky Yes, and how many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry yes and how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died the answer my friend is blowing in the wind the answer is blowing in the wind
That's Blown in the Wind by Bob Dylan. It was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today. His name is Reg Mombasa. You probably know it quite well. We're going to get to know a little bit more of the man behind either the Mambo clothing label, the artist, or the band Mental as anything, because it seems, Reg, that you are involved in so many different little projects all over the place that your public image seems to be very multifaceted already, but I'm looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Um, now, we've just found out that you, you moved to Australia in 1969, and I said it was at the age of 18. You're like, oh, it was 17, but actually it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's a technical uh, slight uh, error. That's fine. <laughs> Why did your family choose to move to Australia? Well, because my father couldn't get any work, actually. We were economic migrants. He was a, he was a carpenter, and at the time he was only 49, but there, there was a sort of a slight recession in New Zealand. And, employers are saying, no, you're too old. So mum went to the Australian consulate in Auckland and asked about carpentry jobs in, in uh, Sydney. And they said, yeah, we've got heaps of work come over. So, so we did. I think they only intended to stay for a couple of years, but we stayed forever. I think one of my favourite quotes, I don't, I don't remember which Prime Minister it was, but the New Zealand Prime Minister who said that the migration <laughs> from New Zealand to Australia increased the IQ of both countries because anyone who was stupid enough to leave That's and right. stay in Australia was, you know... It was Piggy Muldoon, <laughs> which is a great name for a politician too. It's a fantastic name for a politician. Um, how and why did you start making art? Like, was it something that was part of your childhood when you were growing up, or...? Oh, yeah, I, I drew obsessively all the time. I mean, m most children do draw a fair bit, but I was probably a little bit extra obsessive, and my mother used to buy me little um, pads of butcher's paper, which was sort of, you know, really cheap, sort of browny-grey paper, and, um, and I'd get a pencil to... and I'd fill those up, but I, I was always... You didn't get much of a line on, on that poor paper with a, an HP pencil, but occasionally I'd get hold of a biro or a or a, um, a, a ballpoint pen, I think we called them then, but, um, and that would give you a much better line. Do you still have any of it? I know my mum kept all my embarrassing, like, six-year-old art. Is it still locked away in a cupboard somewhere? No, unfortunately, but we, we used to shift a lot because Dad was a builder. If mum wanted a new house, we'd, you know, or she fell out with the neighbours or something, we'd, he, we'd shift up the road and he'd build another house, and she'd always chuck all the stuff out every time we moved. So I've got very little. I've got one or two examples of... Of, of a school magazine I made when I was about 10. I think that's about the only thing I have. I think there would be many people out there who are quite devastated by that fact. I'd say an, an early drawing by Reg Mombasa would be quite a coveted item these days. Well, perhaps, yes, but uh, I, don't, I don't believe there are any. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were saying just before that when you guys first got television, you weren't really all that impressed as a kid, which strikes me as very unusual because most kids talk about their first television or, you know, the neighbour down the street when they yeah. first got TV as this amazing, this brilliant thing, but you were just kind of like, oh. Well, I mean, you know, I appreciated the novelty at first, but as soon as we we got one, and I, I sort of enjoyed playing outside with my cousins and they'd all be sitting like zombies watching these, you know, crappy English and, and um, American shows, usually really cheap old second-hand ones because New Zealand couldn't afford the really top-draw stuff, so... So I, I just resented it. I thought I'd rather be outside playing. Were there any shows that you did like watching? Because a lot of your, particularly your work for Mambo, has that kind of cartoon quality to it. Were there any animated shows or anything that you kind of liked? There were, oh, there were a couple of animated shows. But they weren't very good. They were like those really cheap, sort of hardly, anima hardly moving ones were called Clutch Kaido, I think. And there was, um, there was a good one, a sort of, I think it's a Japanese sort of puppet show called Torchy the Battery Boy, which I thought was was pretty good but um, I actually like comics so I, I read and collected comics but on TV there wasn't the early shows were things like um, uh, William Tell and Robin Hood and a couple of cowboy shows and uh, Coronation Street things like that. Not super impressed by it. Um, no. So you moved to Australia and began studying art and I know that Patrick White soon became a patron of yours which must have been quite mind-blowing. Well, the first show I had at, at um, Wattis Gallery in, I think it was 1975, yeah, Patrick White and his friends bought a couple of my pictures, which, yeah, it was very encouraging for a young artist to have someone like that take an interest. We're going to listen to another one of the songs that you've brought in today, but I would like to talk to you a little bit more about the, the type of people who buy your art, because I think that must be quite a strange experience, knowing that things that you make are out there in people's homes. Um, we'll get to that in just a second, but what should we listen to now? Uh, let's listen to... Can't Be Satisfied by the Rolling Stones. Now, this is a, a cover by the Stones. This is, it was actually it was written by 
Muddy Waters bass player Willie Dixon, and Muddy Waters is a, another great blues artist, and the Stones covered a lot of his songs. Um, I mean, I, I like this song because I, I play slide guitar myself, so I'm, and, I, and I love it's Brian Jones playing the slide guitar, and he was a great player. In fact, the first slide guitar I heard would have been uh, Little Red Rooster, which was another another um, Stones cover of a Willie Dixon song, and that was um, that was a, that was actually number one hit I think in England and probably in Australia and New Zealand. So. So that was the first time I noticed slide guitar, but it can't be satisfied as, and it's one I've covered with a couple of different bands I've played with, so um, let's have a listen to that. It's Can't Be Satisfied by the Rolling Stones. You're on Out of the Box with Reg Mombasa this week. I'm gonna have a listen to that song right now. Last night I saw Lester Maddox on a TV show with some smart ass New York Jew. And the Jew laughed at Lester Maddox audience laughed at Lester Maddox too Well he may be a fool but he's awful And if they think they're better than him they're wrong So I went to the park and I took some paper along And that's where I made this song We talk real funny down here We drink too much and we laugh song by the Rolling Stones. It's called Can't Be Satisfied and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Reg Mombasa. Now you were saying that you, you really liked that song. It's one of the first times that you heard slide guitar. Yes, that's right, yeah. And one that you've covered quite a few times, it seems, in several of the bands that you've played in. Yep. And we'll talk a little bit more about your music after this, but I'm particularly interested in your work as an artist. Um, you've People who own your work include like Patrick White and Elton John and Ewan McGregor, but I've heard you say before that you really like the fact that people with normal jobs also buy your art. Yeah, that, no, I, I mean, I like the idea that relatively normal people can appreciate and like art because, I mean, in the past it's been more of a kind of a, a middle-class thing or, an, or, or in, in, in a, a longer time ago it was an upper-middle-class thing, but now, you know, normal people are sort of quite interested in art. So... I'm not very happy for you know wealthy collectors to buy my things as well, but um, which they do. But but uh, but also you know plumbers and sailors and and um, and 
people that have jobs that you might not think would be so keen on going to art galleries. And, and my, my gallery allows people to pay things off too, so you don't, you don't have to front up with a, an enormous amount of money. Because you've done a lot of work that is that sort of art that's very accessible. You've done a lot of poster work and yeah. quite a bit of commercial work as well for Greenpeace and the mm -hmm. Rock of Stedford. And you've also done work for people like Redfin Legal Aid and the Wilderness Society. Do you approach that differently? Uh, what, to, to the stuff in galleries? Yeah. Yeah, kind of. I mean, there's, uh, the, yeah, there's some difference between the graphic art, the stuff I've done for Mambo and other. It's just record covers and things like that. I mean, I, I try to mix them up a little bit, so, you know, because I'm quite a keen landscape painter and drawer as well, so I do try and put interesting landscapes in the back of the whatever ridiculous creatures might be going about their business in the picture. But um, so, yeah, so the, the graphics bleed into the fine art stuff and, and vice versa. Is there one that you particularly enjoy doing or is it kind of a case of like, I'm kind of stuck with this piece, so I'll go and work on something else for a while? No, I enjoy both approaches and I seem to be able to do it concurrently to some extent. Do you, I'm just sort of interested in your, your process there because you were saying you, you really like more sort of involved landscape work and I know a lot of it has this surrealist quality to it and then yeah there is also your graphic work do you would you work on both in the same day or do you kind of set aside different days and weeks for different projects and styles no I can quite easily work on both in the same day yeah no there's no there's no difficulty in the swapping slightly I mean it's not not that different really um, something that I, I am kind of interested in is a lot of your work has this really irreverent, playful quality, and yet you've been invited to the, the Venice Triennale, you're the patron of refugee advocacy groups, and you know Sydney has asked you to be the creative ambassador for New Year's Eve. You're this incredibly revered public figure, but a lot of your work has this real kind of playful, like throwing it back quality. Does that ever come into some sort of tension? Well, uh, well I, don't feel, I don't feel any, any tension particularly, but I mean, I mean, you can't tell what's going to happen when you let the lunatic take over the asylum to some extent, but um, yeah, I mean, a lot of, yeah, I guess a lot of my, I've always sort of had a sceptical idea about, um, you know, authority and large institutions and sort of um, alpha male, sort of the warrior cult and all that kind of, kind of sceptical about all that stuff, so that there is, there is an, uh, an element of um, mockery and criticism in what I do, I guess. I know that you're you're not hugely fond of a lot of technology. We were having a bit of a chat about computers and your dislike of them before, but I remember your your very first tweet was that very irreverent kind of thing. I think it was just after Julia Gillard had had um, been well deposed, I suppose is the correct word, and you just kind of yeah. decided to throw something out there, put a cat among the pigeons. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm I'm trying to learn how to get my head around tweeting because I mean it's not something that I would have necessarily. Had a go at, but because of, well, because our band, uh, the band I have with my brother, Dog Trumpet, we've got a new album, so we thought we'd better try and get a, you know, get amongst this social networking thing, and so we've got an IT man helping us and advising us, and he said, oh, you should do tweeting, so I'm having a crack at that as well. How are you finding it? Oh, it's it's kind of interesting, you know, coming up with a, an, you know, an observation or a ridiculous comment, but it's it's kind of it's more sort of. It's, it's a, an obligation to some extent. Because, yeah, I think I remember just sort of referencing that first tweet. It was sort of like, oh, all men are idiots, like we're idiots, <laughs> what have we done? Yeah. Oh, I, you know, I definitely think that. I mean, I think, well, it, you could say humans generally, but probably, I mean, it's more, it's really men that have done all the, um, all the sort of, the, I mean, human history is really just a, a river of blood and a mountain of bones, and that's been, um, been the work of men, largely. So I'm fairly sort of... Uh, um, sceptical about, about the human history, which is the history of men to some extent, do you because think, they control things. Do you think maybe your creative career is almost a reaction against that, maybe bringing something different? Oh, well, partly, n not, not entirely, but there's a, certainly an element of that in it. We might have a listen to something else you've brought in. You've got a song called I'm Satisfied. Can you tell us about this one and why you've chosen it? Yeah, well, um, this was the, the, it was it was a song on the first record I bought. I bought three records from a um, a, a record club where you, you'd send away, and this is in New Zealand, and you, you would get three records for four dollars, which was a good quite a good bargain 
three albums in Sober. So one of them was Mississippi John Hurt, uh, which this song comes from, and the other record was um, Lightning Hopkins, and the other one was um, Jim Creskin Blues Band, Jug Blues and Jug Band. So that's that was the those are, those are the first records I bought, and, and uh, so I play. I'm satisfied by Mississippi John Hurt. Do you still have the physical records of any of those ones that you sent away for? No, I wish I still had that one because I, I did actually bring it from New Zealand, but I, when I was an art student I sold it to one of my friends for probably a, a 50 cents or something, so <laughs> seems unfortunately like, I don't have it anymore. Seems like kind of a recurring theme. Um, I remember you bought back one of your own paintings for like $12,000 or something and you sold it for, you know, 350 yeah, as a that student. Was, that was dumb. I, was, I, was, uh, I ripped myself off <laughs> quite badly. <laughs> Let's have a listen to this song, I'm Satisfied by Mississippi John Hurt. This is Out of the Box and this week we've got Reg Mombasa choosing all the tunes. I'm satisfied, tickled too, old enough to marry you, I'm satisfied, it's gonna bring you back. I'm satisfied, tickled too, old enough to marry you, I'm satisfied, it's gonna bring you back. I'm satisfied, tickled too, old enough to marry you, I'm satisfied, it's gonna bring you back. Satisfied by Mississippi John Hurt. He's a slightly more obscure blues artist, but but excellent um, musician. Slightly more sort of gentle, folky sort of blue style of blues that he did. And that's Reg Mombasa. He's my guest on Out of the Box today. He's programming all the songs for you, and we're getting to know him a little bit better now. Reg, one of the things that seems to pop out over the years is that. You seem to like things that haven't changed in years, whether it's landscapes or restaurants. I've heard you say before that your favourite is Bill and Tony's just because it's been the same forever, um, you know, or recording equipment. Why is, is there something about that quality that you really like? Well, I do. Yeah, I do like things to say the same. I'm not mad on change, but uh, and, I, and I'm useless technically, so I like simple machinery that stays much the same because often, you know, you'll get something like a tape recorder and it'll be really good and you'll... It, you know, you enjoy using it and then you'll break it or whatever and then you'll buy a newer model and it's not the same, it doesn't work the same way and the controls are different. So, I mean, I am a useless fool with any, any control. I'm like a sort of donkey trying to do its shoelaces up, trying to operate these tiny equipment that they make these days. So, 
unfortunately I do like things to be much the same, but unfortunately the reality doesn't work that way. In terms of your your records and your music, because Dog Trauma does have a new album out, yeah. is that something that you have an influence over there? Do you prefer to use sort of older recording equipment for things, or does your brother kind of step in and go, no, come on? Well, 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 Peter does. He he does all the production and engineering for um, for Dog Trump, and he does a great job. But I mean, the last two albums we have used Pro Tools, so we're using modern digital equipment. It's taken him a while to get his head around that. But the previous albums we we recorded on old style um, sixteen track um, reel to reel machine that he had, but it, it, that started breaking down. So we had to um, we had to modernise slightly. Do you have like a, a favourite piece of equipment? Is there something that maybe you've used over a couple of albums that really has a sense of history? Well, I've got a guitar that I've had for 30 odd years. I suppose that's my favourite old piece of equipment. But I mean, I still like uh, recording song ideas onto cassette tapes, which is pretty old school now. And for some reason, just like the compressed sound that you get on them. And often, often it's, you know, it's not, it's not very good sound quality because it's, it's lots of hiss and noise on the tape but the actual the actual sort of compression and the sound that I really like even though it's not usable for anything I just like recording song ideas onto it. Can you tell us a little bit about the Dog Trumpet album because I know that you've been making music with your brother Pete for a long time now. Yeah. Has that process kind of changed because you guys started out he was in Mental as Anything with you as well is that yeah. correct? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, so you've obviously, you know, you grew up together and you've been making music together for a long time. How does that relationship work? Is there somebody who's kind of the boss or...? Well, it's, it's pretty easy going. I mean, in a, in a sense, I mean, you know, Peter's more the boss because he does the, he does the engineering and the production and he also, he also tends to, you know, work out any arrangements if we've got, got um, cello or violin or, or horn parts on, on the record. He's, you know, he's a bit more talented musician than I am, but we, we, we divide the songs up 50-50, we'll, we have, uh, mum's, mum told us to share and share alike, so we have to have 50, 50% song, well, he'll write 50% of the songs and I do the other 50%, but um, we kind of, we sort of jam together, you know, on, on it. We'll, each one of us would present one of our new songs and we'll both play it and come up with ideas for it, but basically we, we will come up with most of the words and melody to our own songs and then and then add something to it. So we've, we've worked pretty much the same way for quite some time now. Did you guys make music together when you were kids? Like, was it something that was, I just, yeah, I had this idea, you know, you, you drawing on your butcher's paper as a child with, oh. your, with your pencil. Did you guys make music together as well? Well, not exactly, because I'm, I'm almost seven years older than Peter, so by the time I left home when I was about well, 17 or 18 and, and he was only 11 or 12 and he just started playing guitar then so you know I would I'd show him a couple of things and we'd have a little jam together but I, I wasn't living at home then so it wasn't wasn't so much until he joined the mentals really that we played a lot together I mean he did used to come and occasionally jam with the mentals before he joined the band because um because of our first bass player Steve Copeland played for a couple of years before Pete before Peter joined we might see if we can squeeze in a dog trumpet song somewhere along the line but what should we listen to next um, next, let's listen to um, California Stars by Billy Bragg and Wilco. I mean, this is um, uh, this is a great song, and, and it's also one that we've covered as well. Um, and it's it's actually Woody Guthrie wrote the lyrics, and and then these, and then Wilco and Billy Bragg sort of they did a whole album. I think they did two albums, I think, like this, taking his lyrics that hadn't been turn into songs and then the, and they put the music to it and so it's an interesting project but I mean I think that particular song is fantastic and they did a great job with that one. Let's have a listen to it right now. This is Out of the Box, Reg Mombasa hanging out with you this week. We're getting to know him through some of the music that he likes. Yeah. 
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. That was California Stars by Billy Bragg and Wilco. And Reg Mombasa chose that one for you. He's our guest this week. We're getting to know him a little bit better through the music that he loves. But, of course, he's possibly best known. I keep trying to decide what you're best known for, and I can't figure it out. Um, But possibly best known as a member of Mental as Anything. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about those years. It must have been so much fun having your college band go on to such huge success. Yeah, it was because we didn't we didn't sort of plan it that way. I mean, we basically just wanted to have an art school band playing at a few art school parties. We hadn't considered it as a career, and so it just kind of organically developed that way. Because you guys went on to do a number of things aside from your music, and you put out a, how many albums was it? A huge number. Like oh, a, I think eleven. I think or me and Peter did. We did nine nine studio albums. I think they they done a couple subsequent to us leaving. And, and a, a greater sets and a B-sides, I think. So yeah, what would have been 11 albums, yeah. And aside from your music, I know that you guys did a number of group art exhibitions. How did that come about? Well, because we were all art students, I think it was Martin's idea, Martin, Martin Plaza from the band, um, from the Mentors. He, we were all at art school together, although my brother, Peter, didn't go to art school, but he's since, since become a, a painter. I think it's a viral thing. If you see other people doing it, you catch the virus and have to do it. But he was always keen drawer when he was a kid as well so he had that same um, compulsion to do it so um, yeah Martin suggested we have a show we had our first show in 1982 so they were they were always octennial shows every eight years we would have a show so we had another one in, in 1990 and another one in 98. Speaking of a compulsion to make art I've heard that you guys used to improve the artwork in hotels that you stayed in while you're on tour. Yeah, we did a few. I think that was Martin's idea. We were we were in a in a room together. We both had our our paints with us because we would often because you spend a lot of fairly boring hours when you're on tour sitting around or sitting around in cars or in motel rooms. So we'd often do a bit of drawing or painting. And Martin suggested we alter the painting because you know they're less kind of cheesy sort of pictures of a rainy evening in in Paris or something. You know, and uh, so we would add things to them in the style of the painting to, so it looked like it was part of the painting so it wasn't an obvious sort of um, thing and uh, we'd add uh, you know dogs copulating or some um, a McDonald's sign in the background of this Parisian night scene or 
spaceship, but, but painted in the style of the picture, so it wasn't too obvious. Do you reckon any of it's still around? Have you been back to any of those hotels over the course of many, many tours and sort of found little traces? No, no, I haven't been to that the hotel I'm thinking of, but, but I have heard stories from other people, from, you know, other musicians and roadies that would be lying there. I remember some a story of some sort of roadie lying there one day, you know, sort of dozing off. He, he would... Um, he might have, uh, might have been partying a bit and he was sitting, he was lying on the bed and looking at this painting and then he, he noticed the two dogs and he just started laughing uncontrollably. In terms of leaving a mark on a hotel room, it's probably better than, you know, people like right on the back of a bunk bed and all that kind of stuff and you're lying there in a hostel kind of looking up and it's like so-and-so did this with so-and-so here. <laughs> I imagine that leaving a little improvement on the artwork would have been a bit more fun. Yeah, it was more fun and it's a little bit more civilised than throwing the TV out the window and <laughs> sort of uh, cliched rock behaviour. Was there anything particularly, like, talking of maybe uncivilised behaviour, is there something that you kind of look back on and go, oh, maybe that was a bit much? Once um, um, Greedy threw his ice cream wrapper on the floor, not, oh. in, not in the bin. That was pretty outrageous. That's That's rock and roll. Yeah, very pretty rock and roll. <laughs> You were saying before that you are playing a lot more kind of afternoon gigs and stuff like that, and you're playing your first backyard gig with Dog Trumpet. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like playing, playing in people's houses. I mean, we had played at a few parties, but there's a sort of more formal thing now of people, you know, they will send an email to all their friends and, and they'll pay money and then they'll employ a band to come to the house and play in their house. So, so, I mean, it's an old idea. I, mean, I think, you know, the old American blues and country bands would have been doing that sort of thing, you know, a, a century ago, but, um, but it's becoming popular again. I know, yeah, it's something that it seems to be much bigger in the US, but a lot of people do, like, lounge room tours where they, um, yeah. yeah, they, like, they stay in the house and it's kind of like, yeah, if you guys put us up for the night, we'll play and invite your friends around and, you know, collect a bit of money, pay us a small fee, and that's how they tour. Yeah, that's no, a great sort of informal way of doing it. And it's also, you know, it's also a way of controlling it yourself and not have to rely on promoters and venues, which can be, you know, can be tricky and they're often, you know, bands often end up getting ripped off anyway by, by those kind of um, situations. So it's a good, good sort of people's music for the people, organised by the people. It's, quite, it's kind of a good concept. You guys do have uh, a couple of, I suppose, more structured gigs coming up there. I believe you're playing at Oxford Art Factory in yeah, January. Yeah, we're playing there on the um, uh, Thursday the 16th of January. We'll pop a link up on the program page. You can head to fbiradio.com, go to the little out-of-the-box tab, and we'll pop up info about all the stuff that we've been talking about on the show and, of course, a list of the music that Reg has brought into play for you. What should we kick things off with now? Um... We haven't. Have we had Roll Your Moneymaker yet? No, not yet. All right, well, let's have uh, Roll Your Moneymaker by Hound Dog Taylor. Again, this is a, a, a very sort of um, rough slide guitar player from Chicago called Hound Dog Taylor. He died several years ago, but I did have the pleasure of seeing him play live in, I think it was 1975 or maybe 76. There was a blues package that came to Sydney from America, and he was one of the, um, the acts on the package. And I saw him twice. I saw him once at uh, French's wine bar in, in Oxford Street, in um, Surrey Hills, and uh, also at the Lifesaver. And he was, he was just fantastic. It was the three-piece band, very very sort of gnarly. Um, he didn't have a bass player. He his, um, had a rhythm player who played sort of bass um, riffs on his rhythm guitar and a drummer. And apparently uh, Hound Dog and the, the rhythm guitar player had a, a falling out one day and Hound Dog shot him in the leg. So they were fairly sort of... Fairly tough sort of guys, but that's very, band. very rock and roll. Probably a lot more rock and roll than putting your ice cream wrapper on the floor. That's true. No, we didn't. We, we didn't do any shooting. <laughs> Nobody got shot in the leg. Mentals or dog trumpet. We haven't shot anyone yet. But there's, there's plenty of time for that. <laughs> it's a good achievement. Let's have a listen to that song right now. It's "Roll Your Money Maker" by Hound Dog Taylor. This is out of the box on FBI Radio.
Roll Your Money Maker by Hound Dog Taylor. Uh, another song I must admit that we've covered several times because I, I like it so much. Is that maybe one of your favourite ways of playing tribute? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if, yeah, if you, I mean, obviously every song you like, you can't play because some of them are impossible to play. Um, but you know, if you think you can have a crack at it, yes, it's always good fun. You're listening to Out of the Box. We're talking to Reg Mombasa, who is known as an artist and musician and revered around Australia for any number of his different projects. And at the moment, you're working with your brother on Dog Trumpet. You guys have got a new record out. Are there any covers in the set that you guys are using at the moment? There are, well, there are no covers on, on the new album. Or the, or the kind of half is because one of the songs is by, by Bernie Hayes, our bass player. We recorded one of his songs, a song called Camel Rock, which is a kind of sort of uh, Aussie, Aussie boogie in style almost but um, but no there are no actual covers but we are playing a, one of the new covers we're playing is uh, Over on a Sideways Down by um, um, the Yardbirds so we were having a bit of a laugh before about the fact that you guys as the Mentals as a band who were nationally and internationally known were maybe not very rock and roll um, aside from a few additions to hotel paintings, but it strikes me as, I don't know, to me, the most difficult part of like being a DJ or an artist or a musician or any sort of creative is like coming up with a pseudonym. And it yeah. seems like you guys just kind of pass that off onto each other because you were born Chris O'Doherty in, in right. New Zealand, but obviously people know you now as Reg Mombasa. How does that sit with you? Is it something that kind of happened in your 20s and you're like, oh man, like now I'm just Reg? Yeah, it just happened by the almost by accident. I mean, if I'd had time to think that, that I'd be using that name for 
30 odd years I may have put more thought into it but we, we all had sort of we'd think up these ridiculous names for each other and try and make it stick for a while and then you'd change because I had before I was Regimont Bass I was Dorky Bladder so I'm glad I didn't end up with that one that might have been a little bit more difficult might have, to use might have been a little bit more difficult it's like there was this kid I went to school with and yeah they they gave him a different name every week and they gave him this like this really weird exotic name every week and then for some reason, one just stuck, and so he's just Boris now. Like his name is Justin, but yeah. all all of our teachers and everything used to call him Boris because he had a different name every week. And then I don't know whether everyone just suddenly got tired of it. They're like, "Look, I just can't be bothered remembering your new name this week. You're just going to be Boris Fairbar." Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's odd how those things happen. I mean, I, I named Greedy, um, and his his wife and mother always resented me for making that name stick. But uh, but it's funny. I mean, having a False name. It gives you a. You can sort of hide behind it a little bit. Gives you the kind of relative anonymity that maybe a, a low hedge might give to a straw house or something of that nature. Has anyone else's name really stuck? It seems like yours is a huge part of your identity now. But anyone else from the Mentals? Well, well, the Mentals drummer Bird. We use that name pretty consistently. His real name is David Tuhill, but we we called him Birdie or Seabird, and that that seemed to stick reasonably well. I guess the thing is with yours is that it it really could be somebody's birth name. So I think there are a lot of people who genuinely think that you you're you know maybe you were born Reginald. Yeah, well that's that's kind of believable. Although the surname is fairly exotic, it's actually a town in uh, Seaport in, in Kenya. So if you know it might be my name if I happen to be have been born in Africa, but I wasn't. Of course, I've never even been to Africa, so it's a fairly ridiculous name to have. Speaking of, of travel, I suppose, a lot of your work does have this really exotic sort of quality. Where do you draw it? Because you were saying before that even with your, your graphic work and your commercial work, you always try and put something interesting in the landscape, in the background. Where does that come from? Um, well, it, it doesn't particularly come from travelling widely because I don't particularly like travelling unless it's for work purposes, you know, to have an art exhibition or, or play somewhere. I'm, I'm not all that keen on actually gaping at things, gawping at things, being a tourist. So um, yeah, I, I guess it just comes from partly from you know just reading books and re watching TV and, 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 and fantasy imagination. You brought in a song by The Loved Ones. Why yeah. have you chosen this one? Well, I think the, the Loved One, the Loved Ones, they, they only really did one al one studio album, and it's one of the best ever Australian albums. I think just a fantastic. And Jerry Humphreys, the singer, was such a great singer, and um, and their songs are quite interesting. They're quite often the time signatures were fairly complex, and the chords because they were a, they were a jazz band. They were the Red Onion jazz band pretty much before they turned into the Loved Ones and started doing more sort of R and B, you know, pop sort of stuff. I guess you'd call it, but but a really amazingly good band, great songs, and, and a great record. So we'll, we'll play the loved one by the loved ones. Well, that's, that's all right. That's 
That's a song called The Loved One. It's by an Australian band, The Loved Ones. You're listening to Out of the Box. My name's Heidi Pat, and this week we're getting to know Reg Mombasa. And just in there, I was kind of asking you, Reg, if you if you had any advice or something that you wish somebody had told you when you were 20, and you're like, oh, well, nothing really. And it struck me as kind of interesting because it seems this recurring theme, like you reach this certain level of creative success and you reach this certain age and people start approaching you and asking you to open exhibitions or to be the ambassador for this or that and you're according you this level of reverence which seems to sit quite uncomfortably with you. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I, if people appreciate what I do, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with that and I'm very happy to, to um, acknowledge that. But, yeah, but I don't know any more than I did it when I was 20, really. I mean, if I'd given advice to myself on the street, I'd say, don't be such an idiot, that I probably wouldn't have taken any notice of that advice. But I certainly don't feel that I'm any wiser or, or cleverer about things because I'm, you know, slightly older. Um, I, I, you know, I, maybe don't sell your work for 350 bucks? Yeah, maybe that was, that was foolish as well, but uh, yeah, basically, yeah, try and treat people reasonably decently and politely and, and don't be too much of an idiot. That's the only advice I could possibly give anyone. Don't be an idiot is pretty solid advice. It's generally implementing yeah, it, I think. It covers a lot of things. <laughs> seems to be the problem. Um, but look, speaking of, of being an ambassador and, and having this level of reverence sort of conferred on you, you've, you've been appointed or invited to be the creative ambassador for New Year's Eve this year. Yeah. And you were, you were saying before, you know, Kylie did it last year. That must be... That's right. You, and you seem like quite a, a reticent kind of person. You were saying, you know, you don't really like going out that much. You don't like going <laughs> travelling. Yeah. What's it like being the designated party person for a whole city? Well, it's kind of, I mean, in a way, I mean, I think I was really hired as a graphic artist to, to do the, the bridge effect and, um, and to do some banners that hang around town and, and, and design some themes for the Lord Mayor's Picnic, which is a party for children living with difficulties and, you know, invitations and ads to go on buses so it's and, and I'm having a hand in the fireworks as well so it's it's kind of I mean I mean Kylie I guess is more of a figurehead she's like internationally known and she's a much better dancer than me I won't be doing too much dancing on the night but uh, I don't I could see you in a pair of gold hot pants I reckon that could work out okay oh well maybe I'll give that a I'll have a crack at it yeah maybe I will <laughs> Um, now, the fireworks are this really huge part of news, even sitting yeah. you're saying you have a bit of a, a hand in that. It seems like they're a state secret. Is there anything you can tell us about them? It's pretty much a state secret. Uh, ASIO threatened me with um, a long prison sentence if I divulge any of the details, but um, I will have a hand in the fireworks. So I had suggested that we use just grey, brown and black fireworks, but that was that was slapped down pretty quickly. I said it's technically impossible. And, would be pretty gloomy anyway, so we can. I think we're going to stick with the normal bright colours, and um, and there'll be yeah, there'll be a few surprises involving the fireworks. But again, I can't really divulge them. That's all right. Now, something that you you said before, and kind of yeah, returning to there is that a lot of your your work, um, and particularly your graphic work, I suppose, which is what people really know you for, mm. is so bright and out there and kind of in your face. Um, but you, as a person, are well known for dressing quite conservatively and everything. And I I think I've heard you say before that you wouldn't be brave enough to wear your own work. No, that's that's true. I've always been, as I said before, you know, I've always found human beings generally, uh, present company accepted of course, are generally fairly frightening, violent creatures, particularly the, the, the men, the big men, so I've always been fairly um, frightened of them, so, um, um, and, and attracting their attention by wearing some contentious shirt wouldn't, doesn't strike me as being a very sensible idea. I'm, I'm very happy that other people do, I mean, often if I see someone wearing one of my shirts, if it is one of the sort of more you know, perhaps offensive ones, I feel like going up to them and saying congratulations, you know, that's, uh, that's a very good effort. We've got time for one last song, what's it going to be? Uh, well, for the last song we'll, we'll, a bit of nepotism actually, this is a song by my brother-in-law's band, King Tide, 
And this is a, a beautiful um, uh, summer song. It, we're, we're, it's Boxing Day today, so I think this is an, an appropriate song for the, um, for the time of the year. Let's have a listen to it now. Reg Mombasa, thank you so much for joining us here at FBI. Thanks very much for having me. We're going to leave it on that King Tide song. And of course, you can always head to fbiradio.com if you've just tuned in and you want to listen back to that interview or find out more information about any of the stuff we talked about. It's fbiradio.com. Go to the on-air tab and out of the box.